0: Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning so that we could worship your name, that we could meditate upon who you are and fellowship with one another, encouraging one another um, in our walks with you. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning. Um, Help us, Father, to be attentive to your word. Uh, We pray that this morning you would grow us in our love for you, our love for Christ, our love for you. For his word, because your word is uh, the medium through which we come to know you better. And through which we come to know your will for our lives. um, Through which uh, we are sanctified and made more like our Lord Jesus. And your word is also that through which you cause us to be born again. Lord, if we don't know you yet, your spirit uses your word to birth new life in us where there was only death before. So help us, Lord, to greatly appreciate your word and to um, come back to your word again and again every day so that we might know you more and love you more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no outline this morning. Um, We're just going to kind of do a whirlwind tour through the scriptures. Um, And we're looking at a a topic in particular as we go through the scriptures. Um, There's a question I wanted to ask you this morning before we begin. If you were forced to choose which portions of scripture would be to you the most exciting, which are the ones that are cliffhanger passages for you, the ones that when you read it, it causes you to creep forward to the edge of your seat. Probably no one here this morning would say, that the most heart-stopping passages of Scripture for you are the genealogies. To most of us, the genealogies are the parts in our Bibles where our through the Bible in a year plans come to die. It's the graveyards of our Bibles. But I want to make the case to you this morning that the genealogies are really the most exciting. They are the white-knuckle passages of the Bible. And I know I have a tall task in convincing you of that, but I want want to try this morning. I read for us Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and the opening verse of that chapter, Matthew says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we saw how Matthew spent the next 16 verses running through a list of names leading up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the purpose of Matthew's gospel was evangelistic, like all the gospels were. That's why we often call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the evangelists. And usually when you write a tract to hand out to seek to bring someone to Christ, you usually like to open it up with something exciting. If you're writing that tract, you want to grab the reader's attention so that they will keep reading. And I think Matthew took that same approach, but his attention grabber was a genealogy. To most of us, that doesn't make any sense. If someone gave you a pamphlet that began with a genealogy, it would immediately go in the trash. But Matthew's gospel is geared toward Jewish people you can see that when you read through his gospel he's really his target audience is the Jews that they might come to know their Messiah and I want to show you that for him to begin with a genealogy makes perfect sense that that would be a real attention grabber so to begin let's go to Luke's Gospel chapter 2 Chapter 2 tells us about the birth of Christ and it tells us that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple in order to present him to the Lord in accordance with the law of God. God's law stated that every firstborn child was holy or set apart to the Lord. So they bring Jesus to the temple and when they're there, an elderly man named Simeon walks in. And verse 25 of Luke chapter 2 says, describes Simeon as a man who was looking for the consolation of Israel. Looking for the consolation of Israel. Another individual was there that day, a prophetess named Anna. And verse 38, in speaking about Anna, says that she continued to speak of him, that is, Jesus, the child, continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of of Israel, looking for the redemption of Israel. You can see there that there was an anticipation among faithful believers in Israel of the coming of the Messiah who would redeem the nation. The same kind of anticipation is evident in Luke chapter 1 where we see great promises made to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and great promises made to Mary about the coming of the Messiah. and Zechariah and Mary, they both burst into song and it is very evidently an overflow of a heart that was already anticipating the coming of Christ. And when the angel comes and tells them that he's coming, they just overflow with joy. There's great anticipation. And we won't turn there, but later in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verses 50 to 51, describes a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was the man who gave his tomb to be used by the body of Jesus. And it says of him that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Waiting for the kingdom of God. This looking, this waiting was a looking and a waiting for a person. A person who would be born in order to redeem Israel. They were looking for a son, and specifically a son of David. A son of Abraham, as Matthew says. A certain son of Adam, as Luke's gospel, his genealogy says. Now, where did this anticipation come from? This great anticipation that characterized these individuals we saw in Luke. Well, I want to show you that that the bedrock of that anticipation is the genealogies of the scriptures. Now, to show you that, we need to start back in Genesis 3. So if you would, turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And as you're turning there, um, if you're unfamiliar with this portion of scripture, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating the heavens and the earth, and he places the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, in a garden called Eden. And in that garden, God places two special trees in addition to all the other trees. There was the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God forbade Adam and Eve from eating of one of those trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we know what happens. Satan uses a serpent to deceive Eve. She eats from the tree and she gives some of its fruit to Adam who was with her, and he ate as well, plunging all of creation into the curse of corruption. That's the fall of mankind into sin. And after that happens, God comes to confront the serpent, Eve, and Adam. I want you to listen to what God tells the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to what he says to this serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now the word seed, it means descendant. God curses Satan by saying that a seed or a descendant of Eve is going to crush his head. This one who instigated the fall of man, this serpent, would be defeated. Now I want you, for the remainder of this message, to pretend that you've never heard anything about Jesus or the Bible before. And Genesis 1 through 3 is the first scriptures that you have ever read in your life. And you just read Genesis 3 verse 15. What are you going to be on the lookout for as you continue to to read through the scriptures? You're going to be looking for this person, this seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And so you're going to pay very close attention to who is born to who. And that's where the genealogies come in. So, you're excited, you keep reading, you get to Genesis chapter 4, and you read verse 1, which tells us that Adam had relations with Eve, Eve conceived and gave birth to a son named Cain. And Eve seems to be quite enthused about this child. She says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of, of the Lord. Now remember, you're pretending you've never read the Bible before. What are you thinking as you read verse 1? You're thinking, oh boy, this might be the seed. This might be the one who will crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse. So you excitedly keep reading, and it's not very long before you are sorely disappointed. It becomes quite clear that Cain is not the promised seed because Instead of overcoming sin, he is overcome by sin, and he murders his brother. Can you imagine how crushed Adam and Eve must have been by that? I wonder if they had high hopes for this child, if they thought that this child might be the one, only to find out he's not. And what immediately follows this great disappointment? In chapter 5, what is chapter 5? It's a genealogy. It's a genealogy. And at the end of chapter 5 of Genesis, the genealogy slows down and it puts the spotlight on a person. Who is that person? Noah. Noah. The spotlight stops on the person of Noah. Look at verses 28 to 29 of Genesis 5. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son now he called his name noah saying this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the lord has cursed lamech has high hopes about his son he seems to think that noah might be one to reverse the curse part of the curse was laboring over the tilling of the ground with great toil That was the curse. And Lamech seems to hope that Noah will be the one to grant him relief from that. And so now you're excited again. Okay, Cain wasn't the one, but maybe Noah is. His daddy sure seems to think so. So you keep reading. And things kind of play out in such a way that encourages you to think that Noah is this seed who will crush the head of the serpent. Because God wipes all the wicked off the face of the earth, and he kind of starts over with Noah. We get to Genesis chapter 9, and look at verse 1. God commands Noah to do the very same thing that he commanded Adam to do in paradise. He said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you excitedly keep reading. But then you get to verses twenty through 24, and you're disappointed again. It says, then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Noah failed in the same way that Adam failed. Do you remember when Adam ate of that fruit? What happened? His eyes were opened. And he and Eve knew what about themselves? That they were naked. And here we find Noah, like Adam was working in a garden, Noah is farming. He's tilling the ground. He's planting a vineyard. He's working in a garden of sorts. But like Adam indulging in fruit that was forbidden, Noah indulges too much in what? The fruit of the vine. He becomes drunk by drinking too much wine and he, when he wakes up from his stupor, just as Adam's eyes were open to his nakedness, so Noah comes to the realization that he was naked and his son found him and gossiped about him to his brother's. Noah fails in much the same way as Adam failed. So we know Noah's not the one. We have to keep looking. And Noah, we know, had three sons. So how do we know which one of these uh, sons, which one of their lines to keep an eye on? Well, we know it's not Ham who gossiped about his dad. Noah puts a curse on Ham's descendants But what does he say in verses 26 to 27 when Noah blesses his other two sons? He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Which one of those received the greater blessing, Shem or Japheth? Shem, because Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. So we know we ought to keep an eye on Shem's line. Is everybody excited? I hope so. <laughs> so, we, we're, we're disappointed, but we know where to keep looking. Okay? We come to chapter 10, where we're again launched into another genealogy. And when we get to verse 21, we get excited because there's Shem's name, and we know we ought to keep an eye on Shem. Alright, so we keep reading, we hit chapter 11, there's more sin and rebellion and disappointment, but when we get down to chapter 11 and verse 10, there we see the genealogy of Shem continue. And so our interest is piqued, we keep reading, we go through the list of names, and the genealogy slows down and the spotlight hits who? Abram. Abram. And we get to chapter 12, and we read verses 1 through 3, where God blesses Abram. He says, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." So God gives this incredible curse-reversing type of blessing in chapter 12. So what are you thinking now? Oh, maybe Abram is this seed who will crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. But then you get to chapter 12, verse 10 through 20, and you're disappointed yet again. Because what does Abram do in verses 10 through 20? He's afraid that Pharaoh might kill him to get his wife, and so he cowardly lies about his wife and says she's his sister, and he hides behind his wife and puts her at great risk. He fails just the way Adam failed when Adam failed to protect his wife from the serpent. Abram fails, so he's not the seed either. But God keeps making these incredible curse-reversing promises to Abram. And one of those promises is that God will bless Abram and his wife Sarah with a son in their old age. We see that in chapter 21, where they are promised a son. And he actually gives, or Sarah actually gives birth to Isaac, their son there in chapter 21. And so again, we're thinking, could Isaac finally be the one could Isaac be the one to crush the serpent's head? So we, get, we keep on reading. We get to chapter 22, where Abraham is tested by God when he's commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we see Abraham trust God, and he obediently is about to sacrifice his son, and God stops him. And what does God say to Abram? Or By this time, his name is called Abraham. What does God say to Abram in chapter 22, verses 16 through 18? He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess The gate of his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, at the end there of verse 17, some of your versions may read, Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. But it's actually to be read literally this way Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, singular. God is talking about a singular individual, a person, one seed in particular. And this seed will possess the gate of his enemies. That is who God is referring to. And now you get really excited because you realize that God is speaking about the same seed that he was speaking of back in chapter 3, verse 15. Where there he said, Eve's seed will crush the head of the serpent Here he's telling Abraham that your seed is going to possess the gate of his enemies. It's the same person being talked about. God has not forgotten his promise. The seed is still coming. So now we're looking really closely at Isaac because we think that maybe he's the one. Maybe Isaac is this seed who will crush the serpent's head. But, you guessed it, more disappointment to come. Because we get to Genesis 26 and we see Isaac sin in the exact same way that his daddy sinned when he hides behind his wife instead of bravely leading and protecting her. He hides behind her. So we, need, we know we need to keep looking. And we found out as we were reading up to chapter 26 that Isaac had how many sons? Two sons. And their names, Esau and Jacob. Well, which one should we keep an eye on? Well, back in chapter 25 and verse 23, God speaks to Rebekah, who has these two children in her womb fighting, and she's wondering what's going on, and God says that the older shall serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. So we know whose line do we have to keep an eye on? Jacob's line, all right? The seed will come through Jacob's line. Jacob would go on to have how, how many sons? 12, So things are getting really confusing now. How in the world will I be able to to keep an eye on where the seed is going to come from? Well, then we get to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Where Jacob, who's also named Israel, blesses his 12 sons. And in chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, Jacob gives a special blessing to Judah. His son, Judah. He says to him in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's kind of crushing the head type language. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall the obedience of the peoples be. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. So clearly the seed is going to come through Judah. Out of those 12 sons, He's going to come through Judah. And we find out more information about this seed. He's going to be a king. And he's going to rule over the peoples. And he is going to be very prosperous. So we know more about what to look for. And we might be thinking, okay, how do I know which of Judah's sons to keep an eye on? Because he had several sons. So we go back to where we kind of read about that. And we read about that back in chapter 38. So we backtrack because we really want to find out who do we keep an eye on. And Judah had three sons and the Lord puts them to death because of their sins. So we know it's none of them. And then something weird goes on with Judah's daughter-in-law. He has improper relations with her by accident and she has twins. She has two sons Named Perez and Zerah, and we find the account of that in chapter thirty-eight, verse twenty-eight, where um, Tamar is giving birth to these twins. It says, moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, "This one came out first, because you know it's hard to tell twins apart." Verse twenty-nine. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and he was named Zerah. The circumstances of that birth tell you probably I should keep an eye on this Perez fellow because of the unique way in which he elbowed his way out into the world before his brother. So keep an eye on Perez. So we keep reading, and we slog our way through a lot more sinning people. And it's painfully obvious that the seed has not yet come. But then we get to the book of Ruth. So you you keep reading, you go past Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, and you come to the book of Ruth. And so you read through the book of Ruth, and you get to chapter 4, and at the end of chapter 4, lo and behold, what do we see? Another genealogy. Time to get excited again. And in verse 18, whose name is at the head of this genealogy? It's Perez, the son of Judah that we knew we had to keep an eye on. And who does this genealogy stop at? It stops with David shining a spotlight on David. We get the feeling that we're getting closer to this seed who will crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse and who will rule the world. So we keep reading and we come to the book of First and 2 Samuel where we read about this David. And what do we read about David? We read that he's a man after God's own heart. And when the nation of Israel is being intimidated by a literal giant, Goliath, who everyone is afraid to face. It's David who steps up and does what to this giant? He crushes the giant's head with one throw of his sling. Something the seed would do. So we're very excited now. This sounds like it might be, might be him. And then he becomes a king, which we know that this seed will be. He, be, he will be a king. So we keep reading, and we come to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. And it's there that we know we have to wait a little bit longer because God lets David know, you're not going to be this one that, that I've been talking about and building up to. David is not the seed. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. God tells David, When your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So we've narrowed things down even further, because now we're not only looking for the seed of the woman. We're not only looking for the seed of Abraham or the seed of Judah. We're, not, we're looking for the seed now of David. And this seed will not only rule, but he will also build a temple for the Lord. So we know even more about what to look for, for this coming seed who will crush the serpent's head. He will build a temple. Now let's fast forward again to 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings. And there we find one of David's seeds, his son Solomon. Solomon. Who is crowned king? Could this be the one who's coming? We keep reading to 1 Kings chapter 4. And now again we're excited because let's think through the promises that God has been making and see if this son of David is fulfilling them. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Look at chapter 4 verse 20 says Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance they were eating and drinking and rejoicing seems that that is coming true under the reign of Solomon God also promised that this coming seed of David would, uh, would rule over multiple peoples remember he promised that to Judah he would be obeyed by many peoples Well, we read verses 21 through 28. Uh, Just look at verse 21 where it says Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Not only that, but he's incredibly prosperous, which was promised to Judah. That's what the seed would be like and then look at verses 29 through 34 says now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore and he just goes on like that all the way through verse 34 surely the coming seed who would crush the serpent's head will be someone like this so we excitedly keep reading and when we come to chapter 6 What do we see Solomon do? He builds a temple for the Lord. Okay, this has to be him. So we keep reading. We're so excited. I can feel the tension in the room. And we come to chapter 10. And we see this Queen of Sheba come to visit because she's heard of the greatness of Solomon. And listen to how she describes Solomon in chapter 10, verses 4 through 9. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men! How blessed are these servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom! Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king." to do justice and righteousness. Wow, that's that's something else. This has to be the seed that we're looking for because the curse seems to be reversing before our very eyes as we read about Solomon, his reign, and the kingdom, and how the kingdom was being blessed under his reign. So we keep reading. We are convinced we found him. He's the seed. And then we come to chapter 11, and we are disappointed more than we have been thus far, because Solomon turns away from God. He is overcome by the serpent instead of crushing his head. And so despondently we just keep reading through first and second kings, and we find all of the, 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 mar- the large majority of Solomon's successors falling short of the glory of God. We see the kingdom ripped away from him, split in two, and king after king repeatedly and defiantly abandoning God and being overcome by the devil rather than the reverse. And it gets so bad that God sends the split kingdom of Israel and Judah into exile. And not only that, but the last surviving king of Judah, Solomon's seed, his descendant, named Jehoiachin, gets cursed by God. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 22. Here, God curses Jehoiachin, who's also named Jeconiah and named Coniah. He goes by the name Coniah here in Jeremiah Twenty-two. Look with me at verses 24 to 30. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, this is Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even though he were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his seed been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah." Of all the times we've been disappointed as we've traveled through the scriptures, this is the greatest disappointment of all because it seems like God is not going to fulfill the promise he made in Genesis 3, verse 15, nor the promise he made to Abraham, nor the promise he made to Judah, nor the promise he made to David. In verse 30, God said that none of Jehoiachin's seed Would sit on the throne of David or rule again in Judah. Verse 24 pictures Jehoiachin like a signet ring on God's hand that he pulls off and throws away from himself. What does this mean? Does this mean that the seed will not come after all? That the serpent's head will not be crushed? That the curse will not be lifted? We're very disappointed. One of the last books of the Old Testament to be written was the book of Chronicles. And our English version split that book up into two, first and second Chronicles. And Chronicles is uh, the most crowded graveyard of your through the Bible in a year plans. Because you hit Chronicles and it's chapter after chapter of genealogies and you just throw up your hands and say, clearly I'm not going to be able to do this. But that is the moment of the most excitement okay turn with me to first chronicles first chronicles this book was written after judah's exile into babylon after the people came back to the promised land first chronicles so you hit first and second samuel first and second kings and you get to first chronicles now, I want you to pretend that you're a Jew coming back from the exile. And you've read the prophet Jeremiah. You know about the curse on Jehoiachin. But now you, you unfurl this new scroll of chronicles. And you start reading and your jaw hits the floor when you see genealogies. Because up until this point in scripture, genealogies have always been pointing, shedding more light on the coming seed. And so your palms get sweaty and you can scarcely get, uh, you're you're afraid to get your hopes up, but your hopes start rising because you're reading a genealogy here. Despite the curse that you read about in Jeremiah, you start racing through these names. In chapter 1, you see Adam and Noah and Shem. In chapter 1, verse 27, you see Abraham. And then you keep reading, and you see Isaac. And then you get to chapter 2, and you see Isaac's son Israel, or Jacob. And you see Jacob's 12 sons. And in chapter 2, verse 3, you find Judah. And in verse 5, you find Perez. And you keep reading, and you get to verse 15, where you find David. And you get to chapter 3, and you see David's sons listed. And in chapter 3, verse 10, you find Solomon. And now you trace Solomon's line, and you get to verse 17, where you find Jehoiachin, or as he's named here, Jeconiah, the prisoner. And then you start to read through Jehoiachin's descendants, his seed. And in verse 19, you find the name Zerubbabel. And that jumps out to you because Zerubbabel was the governor when people came back out of exile, back to the promised land. Zerubbabel acted as the governor of these returning exiles. And Zerubbabel's name pops up in a couple of the books of minor prophets who ministered at the time of the the post-exilic period. And those guys are Haggai and Zechariah. They're the ones that mention Zerubbabel. And I want to focus on Haggai because Haggai was used by God to encourage the returning exiles and specifically to encourage Zerubbabel to rebuild what? Anybody remember? The temple. Now that should get your wheels turning because what did God promise David about his seed that he would build for him a temple? So that kind of gives you a spark of hope in your heart that maybe this promise is not dead. So you you turn back to Haggai. So If you're looking in your Bibles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you start flipping through the minor prophets, you hit Jonah and Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai. And Haggai chapter 2 has a few verses I want you to look at. Haggai chapter 2 Verses 20 to 23. If you hit Zechariah, you went too far. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember God's curse on Jehoiachin? Jehoiachin was the signet ring God yanked off of his hand and threw away. Well, here Zerubbabel is pictured as a signet ring that God puts back on his hand. And you read that, and a wave of relief floods over you because the moment you read that, you realize that the seed of the woman is still coming. God has not canceled his promise. The serpent's head is still going to be crushed, the curse is still going to be lifted, and the seed will come and rule over all the earth, and so you need to keep looking. Now between the Old and the New Testament, there was a gap of time, about 400 years, when God was not speaking to the people anymore. It was just a deafening silence that stretched on for four centuries. But despite that long silence, when we hit the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we find that there is still great anticipation. Zechariah and Elizabeth are looking. Mary is looking. Simeon, Anna, and others at the temple were looking. Joseph of Arimathea was looking. And the seed finally came. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David came. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, finally came. He was born of a virgin, seed of the woman. Jesus came to die on the cross for the sins of his people so that they might be redeemed from the curse that came due to their sin. And Jesus rose from the dead, crushing the head of the serpent, freeing his people from the fear of death that loomed over them because of their sin and he is coming again to set up his everlasting kingdom and every vestige of the curse will be driven away. We finally know his name and we finally know what he has done to save us. Can you imagine the thrill that must have went up Matthew's spine as he got out his parchment and he hovered his pen over the paper and he started writing down these words, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because finally the genealogies could stop because the seed of the woman had finally come. And so the question for us this morning is, do you know this seed, Jesus Christ? Are you still enslaved in your sin? Are you still under the rule of the devil? Because if so, There is salvation available to you in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. He can set you free. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the great drama that is your word that stretches across millennia. Lord, it truly is the biggest story ever told and the best thing about this story is that it's true. It's not a work of fiction. It is historical truth, and yet there's a a great point to this history that is the Bible, and it all points to Jesus Christ and the salvation that we can have in him. Lord, may we love your word more as a result of what we've seen this morning. May we trust in Christ even more, and those who don't know Jesus, may they come to know him even for the first time this morning as they see the whole of your word pointing to this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. May Christ be the center of all of our lives, we pray in his name. Amen.